Second Corinthians this evening. So Second Corinthians chapter one, where Paul now is writing again to the Corinthian church. They probably the two letters were written uh, not necessarily in close proximity to uh, in terms of a time frame. Um, many people think that it was about a year later. Some believe it was about six months later that Second Corinthians was written. Remember, in First Corinthians, it was largely a corrective letter. Uh, there were many things that needed to be addressed. Uh, Paul uh, wrote some very harsh things uh, in his reprimand against the things that they were allowing in the church. And um, he wasn't exactly sure how that was going to be received. And if you recall... He had sent Timothy to Corinth um, to uh, kind of get things settled uh, with regard to the various things that he was addressing in that first letter. And he also had intended for them to see him uh, in fairly short order. They, they were expecting that Paul would be coming through Macedonia uh, down to Corinth and he would winter there. Um, that didn't happen. And that's part of the reasons why he's writing this letter. Uh, he had also heard uh, from Timothy that they had received what he had to say, uh, but after a period of time, uh, apparently there were still some major concerns, and Titus uh, was supposed to meet Paul and uh, give him an update. And that didn't really happen. There were things that they had planned that did not work out as they had intended. And part of the first section of this letter has to do with the fact that they didn't like the fact that Paul never did show up at Corinth. And it's not all of the church, but there were some in the church who were raising uh, some red flags against Paul as a result of the fact that he never did show up in Corinth, as they said he had said he would do. Paul never said specifically that he for certain would go there. It was his intent to go there. And in fact, in the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we read that Paul said, if it is the Lord's will, I will be there. Uh, and it did not happen. And again, that's part of the reason why Paul is writing this letter. Um, he's defending himself a lot in 2 Corinthians because of the fact that there was this opposition in Corinth uh, that he needed to address and continued to address um, in this letter. There are some good things that Paul says about the Corinthian church in this letter as well, and we'll get into that as, as, as we move forward. But this particular letter, again, written around 56 AD, um, is a letter that Paul was expressing his gratitude for the fact that they had addressed those problems that he had uh, dealt with in the first letter. But also, he's defending his, himself in his apostleship because that is something that some of those Corinthians, apparently leaders in the Corinthian church, or at least spokespeople who had some degree of influence in that church, were saying that Paul wasn't a kind of uh, person that you could trust. And they didn't really accept his apostleship. And so right from the very beginning, Paul begins to address those kinds of issues. And in fact, in the very first verse, 
he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And that is what they were arguing against, that he wasn't one of the original apostles, and therefore he didn't have apostolic authority. But Paul is saying, oh yes, I am an apostle, and that apostleship was um, managed uh, originally uh, ordained by the Lord himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And he says, and he's also got Timothy with him, so he includes Timothy in this opening verse of the letter to let them know that Timothy had made it back safely to where he is, which is now uh, the territory of Macedonia. He's in Philippi, according to most uh, records that we have, uh, as, as far as we can tell, he had made it to Macedonia and started going through that northern area of modern-day Greece, and he is heading in the direction of uh, Corinth, and he does hope to get there uh, eventually. But it is not according to their time schedule. It's according to God's time plan. Paul had made several other attempts to do certain things that didn't quite work out exactly as he had intended. And I'm reminded that the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, says, Man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So there are some times when we make plans that we sometimes can't quite get them uh, to work out as we had hoped. And that was the case with Paul in more than one occasion. But he's saying here that this, this is his introduction again, He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And he addresses this letter to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who were in Achaia. So there were people in Corinth and Sancria and around the isthmus of uh, southern Greece that uh, would have been part of that church uh, that he's addressing in this letter. And he says, Grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he addresses his opening remarks with this uh, salutation, grace and peace. Beautiful pair of words that are so significant to us as believers because without God's grace, we could never have the peace of God. That's why he always uses that phrase with grace being the one word that precedes the other. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God of our Father, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, mercies and comfort are so very, very important to all of us as believers. We're told that his mercies are new every morning. And we're grateful for his merciful uh, way toward us. His mercy and his grace and his comfort here mentioned and He's going to use that word comfort um, or some deviation of that word, depending on your translation, several times in the next couple of verses. Uh, but it's important. Paul is needing to be comforted. And so are we needed, needing to be comforted. In many of our experiences in our life, we have difficulties, we have trials, we have afflictions. Some would say tribulation, and that's certainly uh, something that uh, is very likely trials and tribulations and afflictions and difficulties are part of our everyday normal experience. Even though we are believers, we know that Jesus had said 
that in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But that tribulation isn't the same as what the world is going to experience in the seven years of the great tribulation that will come upon the face of the earth. That tribulation will be the wrath of God. The tribulation that we face, uh, God is not the primary source. God allows it, uh, but it isn't for pouring out his wrath against his people. Uh, there's a difference between the tribulation that we suffer or the afflictions that we suffer and that which is going to come upon the face of the earth in those days. But he is a God of comfort whenever we do have to deal with troubles of any kind. And he goes on to say in verse 4 that God comforts us in all our affliction or tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Take note of the fact that what Paul is saying here is very important for us with regard to what we call body ministry. We are to comfort others who are going through difficulties whenever we can we know that because we have been comforted by God in the things that we've had to struggle with, we can then extend that same comfort to those who are going through this problem that they are facing because we know that what God did for us, He will do also for them. Now, that is important. Now, it doesn't mean that we are needing to have experienced the same kind of trouble that others are now going through in order for us to bring comfort to them. We can be a comfort to others even if we haven't had that same experience, specific experience, but we, know, we all have been comforted by God and we all can make use of that which God has done in our lives to be a blessing to others in bringing comfort to them. And there are many people who are in trouble, many people who are discouraged, many people who are having doubts, many people who are fearful, many people who are struggling financially. In this last days, there are all kinds of difficulties that many of the church is facing. And I suggest to us all that we keep our eyes and ears open to those needs and become more attentive to and more compassionate for those things that we might be able to help others and bring comfort to them. He says in verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Paul had suffered greatly, and perhaps there's no other saint that I know of that perhaps would have suffered as much as Paul. He gives an extended list in this book of the Second uh, Corinthian letter uh, of some of the things that he had to endure. And I wouldn't want to have to deal with any one of those things that he had to suffer. But Paul says in Philippians that it was his desire to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering and the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his suffering. He suffered greatly. And he wanted to be able to experience that which Jesus himself had experienced in that same area of his life of suffering. Christ suffered greatly, and Paul suffered greatly. And they took that suffering with great uh, stride and, uh, and uh, trusting in the Father who would keep them through it. Jesus endured the suffering, the shame of the cross, because of the glory that would be revealed 
Paul said, I suppose that the suffering of this present age is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in that day. So this glory that we all can look forward to that makes it so the suffering that we might have to endure in this life is not so hard to endure if we allow the comfort of God to penetrate that shell of a person that we sometimes can be. But I tell you that the suffering that we are likely to experience or may be experiencing now, again, is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in that day. That's our hope. And Paul says that in the next verse. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation, of the glory, of the uh, victory in Christ. Those are the things that Paul is saying to them and to us, that it is not a crisis that he won't allow us to have, but he uses those crises uh, to bring glory to his holy name. I remember also that Job, when he was going through the various trials that he had to endure, his three friends came and they thought that he had some sin in his life. And so instead of comforting him, they brought condemnation. They brought judgment. They did the opposite for Job of what we are to do for our brothers and sisters who need that kind of comfort. Let us not be like those friends of Job, uh, but let us be, as Paul said, those who would comfort uh, with the comfort that God gave to us so that we might glorify the Lord and be participants and partake of the consolation that is ours even through the enduring of this time of suffering. Continues in verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Now, we're not exactly sure what Paul is referring to here, but in Asia, that territory of the Roman Empire, known as Asia then, is modern-day Turkey. It's where Ephesus was, and he had written, remember, 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. He had been in Ephesus for a great deal of time, and many uh, churches in Asia Minor were established during his time in Ephesus. But while he was in Ephesus... It we're told in Acts 19 that many people had come to the Lord and they uh, made a bonfire of all the books of witchcraft that they had, all the various uh, idols that they burned in these fires uh, publicly. And they were de uh, deciding to follow Jesus in great numbers. Ephesus was a very, very uh, wonderful ministry that Paul experienced, but there were pressures, there were difficulties, there was uh, a lot of uh, animosity towards the work that he was doing. And much of that was caused by the artisans of that day, the uh, people who made the uh, images that they sold in the temple uh, of their gods, and the god Diana or the goddess Diana, uh, the images that they might made, the idols, uh, were not being bought anymore by a, a lot of people because 
they were turning to Christ. And so it impacted these uh, metal workers' uh, trade. And they began to form an alliance with each other to come against the church in Ephesus. And it ended up causing a great riot. They got into a public place and they got a bunch of people together and they started shouting uh, that they were worshippers of the goddess Diana. Great is Diana. Great is Diana. Uh, and over and over again, they uh, continued to raise up this great voice and it caused such a stir in Ephesus that the local government came in and, and put a stop to it. But that was perhaps the beginning of the persecution that Paul was feeling that was coming against him. He also said, remember in 1 Corinthians, that he fought lions in Ephesus. Not literal lions, I don't believe, but those who were opposed to him were as lions against him. And that's the implication that Paul is giving here in this letter, that there was so much opposition that it became a point of even coming to the place of despair. He says in verse 9, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will deliver us. You also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So Paul recognizes in the, dis, the, the discomfort, in the uh, terrible situation that he was facing, that prayer was so very, very important. And I believe that that is still the case in the church today. We should be praying for the leaders of our country. We should be praying for the leaders in the churches. We should be praying for those who are bearing responsibility for the care of others. And that prayer that we pray does have a wonderful effect. I'm grateful for those who have, over the many years, been praying for our ministry here and praying for me and praying for Sandy specifically and, and, and praying for you all. And it's so important that we continue to do that. It is a great privilege that we have to pray for one another. And it's a great blessing to be the recipients of those heartfelt prayers, especially when we're going through times of difficulty. You can sense that the prayers are effective and they are helping in the time of need and the stress that we have to face on a daily, daily, day-to-day -day basis. So he says to them, and he's again here commending them, you also are helping together in prayer for us. And he's thanking them for their many prayers on his behalf and the, on behalf of those who are with him. Now, Paul is a very sincere individual. He is a very, very good expositor of the Old Testament scriptures. He is a wonderful, faithful servant of God. He was chosen by God, and he became an apostle. That's an appointment that God had made. They didn't understand that kind of thing uh, in Corinth, apparently, because they questioned whether or not he should have had that authority. And they questioned that based upon the input from those who were against him. And they were beginning to sway some of the people, perhaps many of the people, against Paul and against his authority. 
But Paul in verse 12 begins to talk about that authority that he has and the reason why uh, he should be uh, listened to as an authority. He says in verse 12, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying, you should be fine with the idea of knowing that I have given you from God Godly wisdom, the things that I have spoken, are God's truths. And you should understand that you can boast in these things. As I boast in you, so should you also boast in me, Paul says. And he says that that should be the case, and it will be the case, when we all stand before the Lord in the day of the Lord Jesus, which is where Paul will refer to later as the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Jesus, where we all as believers will receive our rewards. Paul fought the good fight. Paul ran the race so as to win. And Paul, in the second letter to Timothy, ended his letter by saying, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, and there is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But not only for me, but also for also all those who love his appearing. And that is the reference that Paul is making here in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 15, And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again to, from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. But that didn't happen, Paul is going to say. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. There's a lot of yeses and noes in this passage, but what Paul is saying is, we're not double-faced. We're not double-minded. We didn't tell you one thing and do another. We had said we would love to be able to do this if it is God's will. So he's defending himself again against the accusations that you said you were going to come to us and you did not, so therefore we can't trust you, we can't trust your teaching, we don't think that you are being forthright with us. And Paul is saying, it's not that I intended to do what has happened, it just came about. My plans had to change. I was forced to do what I am doing now, and I will if the Lord wills, get to Corinth. But right now, it just didn't work out that way. But don't think that because it didn't work out that I'm not trustworthy. My yes is yes. My no is no. And I speak the word of God in truth. And so does Sylvanus and Timothy. And it is God who is to get the glory from what you know we have taught you. 
God is faithful. And our word to you was from God, Paul is saying here. So this is important that Paul is again addressing these accusations. Verse 20 says, For the promises of God in Him, Jesus, are yes, and in Him, Amen. The promises of God are yes and Amen. So be it. That's what Amen means. To the glory of God and through us, these promises are given. He says in verse 21, Now He who establishes you with us, or us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, is God. Again, He's saying, I am an apostle. He anointed us to be what we are in Christ Jesus. He's established us and anointed us. And that is something that Paul was emphatic about. And he needed to be here. Not all the letters that Paul writes are letters where he has to emphasize his apostleship. Many of the letters he writes just by simply saying, Paul, a Doulos, or bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. The only other place that he identifies himself as the apostle in such a, a strong emphasis is in the letter to the Galatians, where the Galatians, that whole region of Galatia, had been overwhelmed by many Judaizers, and Paul had to address them and had to express his authority as an apostle to set them straight as well. So Paul does use his position as an apostle whenever the need arises. And he defends that apostleship by saying, God anointed him to this task. And you remember in the book of Acts, where Paul was on the road to Damascus, that is where that anointing took place. God did indeed call him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Jesus spoke to Paul on that road and gave him specific instructions with regard to his ministry. Many other times that God uh, encouraged Paul in times of trouble. While he was in Corinth, uh, Jesus came to him then and told Paul, I have many people in this city, Paul. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Don't fret. Trust in the Lord, Paul was told, and more than one place. Paul was stoned when he left the city of Lydia. And then after having been stoned and having been left for dead, he got back up and went back into the city and began to preach some more. Paul was a man who was unstoppable in his commitment to serving God. He was indeed an apostle worthy of the name. Now he says in verse 21, now he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us in spirit, in, given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He sealed us. That's important for us to realize. You must recognize the fact that in the Roman society in which Paul lived, a seal was a means by which an owner could designate that a particular item was his or her property. They had a signet ring with a marking that was unique to them. And they would take wax and pour wax on 
a container or whatever the product was that they wanted to identify as their own. And as the wax had uh, begun to harden, they would embed that ring, that signet ring, into the wax so that it then became an obvious identifier that this belonged to that particular individual. That's the kind of seal that is being expressed here by Paul that God has sealed us with. His spirit is basically uh, that seal which he says we are sealed with. And it is an expression of the fact that he owns us and no one can take this property from him. That's important. That's how we should look at this and understand this. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit as his property. And again, he says that he's given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, a down payment, an earnest. You know, if you have a mortgage uh, that you are buying a house, you're going to apply for a mortgage, and there's usually earnest money involved. It means that you as a buyer are going to give this earnest money as a promise to the seller that you will go through with the purchase as long as the bank allows you to do so. That earnest money is a down payment. And that's basically what we look again as with regard to the Spirit of God. He is our down payment of something still yet to take place. That down payment of eternal life. We have a down payment in the now, in the present. It is our assurance that what God has promised will indeed be fulfilled. That's good news. You know, Paul tells us in many places that that we are the bride of Christ. And as his bride, we have an exclusive right to an inheritance. As his children, we have an exclusive right to an adoption. We are blessed beyond measure. And he will not let us go. He hates divorce. He will not choose to get rid of us, to let us go. He is never going to leave us nor forsake us. He holds us in the palm of his hand. That's the impression that Paul is giving here when he says to us, and again, verse 22, he has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Don't you ever forget that, people of God. He says in verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. In other words, if he had gone to Corinth at the time that they were expecting him, it probably wouldn't have worked out well for them. He was very, very mad, angry at the things that they were doing, allowing in the church. He had sent that letter as a corrective letter, but if he had gone there, they probably would have been uh, facing a little bit more of uh, Paul's um, uh, refutation against them, and and he would have been very likely to be very hard on them. So he spared them, he says, that difficulty by not going. It was to their advantage uh, that he didn't go then. Now that he has had, in this letter, Timothy has met with him, or Titus rather, has met with him in Philippi, and we'll learn later on in this, this book that Titus gave him some encouraging information, and that was a wonderful thing. But at the time when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, if he had followed through with his plans, 
it would have been a very difficult time for the Corinthian uh, fellowship. Paul ends this first chapter with the statement, In verse 24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. See, Paul is saying, yes, I have a right as an apostle to reprimand, to uh, um, exhort you, to tell you that you've done things that you should not have done. You've allowed things that you've not, not been supposed to be allowing. But you understand also that you are... Christ's, and you are, as the church of God, standing in faith in a good place. You are fellow workers with the rest of the Christians throughout the world, and it should bring you great joy to know that uh, you are a member of the body of Christ. Paul is telling them that this is so very, very important. They need to understand that as badly as they have uh, treated him as terribly as they have uh, somewhat deliberately perhaps or ignorantly done things that should not have been done, allowed things that should not have been allowed. They are still members of the body of Christ. And there is need for repentance whenever we sin. Paul doesn't ever exclude that. He always emphasizes that. But he says that when you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are standing in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are sealed with a promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we can indeed stand and we are able by faith to work our salvation out in fear and trembling. And we should know that there is never any ever any doubt that we should ever have with regard to our status with God. We are His. He is ours. His banner over us is love. He has chosen us. We are his elect. We have been taken into his family. We've been grafted into the vine. Don't think for a moment that you can take that lightly. Be very, very grateful to the Lord for his faithfulness to you but also be willing to trust in his ability to take you through every trial, take you through every temptation, and provide a way for you to escape. And if we sin, you have an advocate with the Father. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No man can say, I do not sin. Every one of us must recognize that we are sinners in need of his salvation, and we've received that salvation freely. It's a gift given to us. By faith, we received it. Let us stand in that faith. Let us walk in the Spirit in these last days. Let us glorify Him, no matter what comes our way. Let us comfort one another with these words. Let us have that hope that we have been blessed with to continue to become and be a part of our everyday lives. Let us never fail to serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us be faithful servants to the end. And I thank 
God for all of you for having been a part of all of what God has done in this ministry that we have here at Safe Harbor. And I pray that God will continue to use us and bless us with His power to endure, His strength to endure the sufferings that may come our way uh, as a result of the persecutions that may arise in these last days. May it be that every one of us will stand firm to the end, trusting in Him. Amen and amen. Grace and peace.